Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. George Patterson is founder and director of Tofino Botanical Gardens on the west coast of Vancouver Island, which is located in the northeastern Pacific Ocean and is part of Canada's province of British Columbia. George founded Tofino Botanical Gardens in 1997 and its 12 acres of gardens, old growth forest, and shoreline explore the relationship between culture and nature. George is a native of New Jersey and discovered a passion for plants through a bit of serendipity while studying Latin American history and literature at Harvard University. After stints with Bartlett's Tree Service and Arnold Arboretum, George owned an interior and urban landscape design company in Boston for 17 years. He came to Tofino 22 years ago by way of Costa Rica, where he established an arboretum. I'm delighted to welcome George to BCD's People Are Culture podcast. George, welcome so much. I'm delighted to be having this conversation with you, and I appreciate you making the time. And I'd like to dive right in with my first question, which is, what is culture? There's a small question to start with, but, uh, um, you know, a lot of people don't kind of recall that, that culture actually is an agrarian term. And, uh, you know, because the, the Latin root is colere, and it has to do with cultivation, uh, taking care of the land. Um, and that very early on started to be used as a metaphor for cultivating the soul or cultivating the mind. So, but in a, in a broad way, culture is kind of everything we do as people and as, a, as social groups. You know, I love that, George. I, as someone who has studied uh, culture intensely for 15 years, I never knew that. Um, I never knew the origins, and that makes total sense. Um, yeah, so all of those words like horticulture, uh, viniculture, you know, it has to do with caring for things, cultivating. Uh, what a great way to frame that. Um, well, then, with another uh, small question, um, why does culture matter? Well, cult culture is everything we are. You know, it, it, it matters in such a fundamental way. It's hard to describe it. It's uh, without culture, we, we wouldn't exist. Um, so it, it matters uh, very fundamentally that if, if we're human, we're involved in culture. We have a culture. Okay. And why does it matter? I think cult culture matters because it's so essential to our experience as human beings. Uh, without culture, we we might exist, but it would be such a 
an impoverished existence uh, compared to the, the way we live now. Um, so really, really, without without culture, we're not human beings. Okay, that that makes sense to me. Now, now let's talk about your story, and um, let's start with the culture that you grew up in, which was in a New Jersey community of tall buildings and no trees. Um, and yet you have called home for more than 30 years, a place that is heavily forested. So I'm curious what your view is on how access to nature plays a role in local culture. But yeah, there, there, is, there is that contrast between where and when I grew up in Jersey City, in New Jersey, uh, and where I live now. People always comment on it when I mention that I'm from New Jersey. Uh, You know, I've come to think that wherever we are, we are in contact with nature, Uh, that you don't really have to be in a forest all the time, living in it the way I am to... uh, to maintain a, a very intimate, serious connection with nature. Uh, when I when I lived in New Jersey and I was a little kid, and I'm talking about fourth grade, fifth grade, I spent a lot of time in these empty lots that were scattered around the neighborhood uh, where buildings had been torn down. And they were these, you know, brick-strewn lots with a few little Atlantis shrubs growing up, uh, weeds, lots of glass. Uh, and I used to spend a lot of time out there crawling around and kind of creating little little roadways and pathways and building dams and creeks and little villages. So I, was, I was a landscaper when I was in the fourth grade. That was one of my, my big thrills and, and activities was kind of in these miserable little lots, uh, they didn't seem miserable to me because I was a kid. They were great places and filled with mystery and adventure. So coming out here and having these real forests to walk around and uh, I love it and I enjoy it and I'm, I'm still fascinated by it. But I don't want to underplay the the access to nature that we have almost every place. You know, you're if you're in a real city, you know, it, there's the weather. There, there are lots of uh, natural features that you're dealing with. You all know, the that's time. really thought provoking because you're you're really um, making clear that that nature does not necessarily mean. Um, you know, being in a pristine forest, it's the environment you're in. Exactly. And it's all environments everywhere. Uh, I I also think that there are are people who will travel places and perhaps be in one of the most amazing tropical forests that, that there is you know, surrounded by thousands of species of trees and palms and shrubs and just sort of walk through it and say, oh, this is nice. 
and then there'll be other people who who go there and are just gobsmacked by the diversity and richness. So it it depends a lot on on a person's uh, kind of mood and ability and interest to see a place. And I, I think that's kind of what you're hoping to do is to to help prepare people to visit places so they can just have a richer, deeper experience. Well, you're right. And I think, you know, even more than that, um, you know, I have this uh, strong belief um, that curiosity creates a rich life. And um, I read a quote a long time ago that was attributed to Dr. Seuss. I don't know if that's correct or not, that nothing's interesting if you're not interested. Um, and, um, I think being interested is a great way to live. Uh, so now going back to, you know, your, your beginnings kind of, um, in terms of interacting with, with nature, you know, the way that a lot of people might think about nature, um, during college, you worked for Bartlett Tree Experts, and early in your career, you worked for the Arnold Arboretum, which is an international center for the study of plants located here in Boston that dates to 1872 and is affiliated with Harvard College. Um, are there any takeaways from those two experiences about the role of plants in our human culture? Yes. Yes. Uh, I I was a uh, I had just registered for my third year of college and I was walking along the Charles River and I saw this little cottage in next to the Polaroid building along the Charles and yep. they had a sign on the, in the front of the building a little help wanted sign and without really thinking about it or anything I walked over and went in and asked about the job uh and ended up dropping out of college for a year to work for Bartlett's Tree Service. So during that time, Bartlett's had the contract to do the uh, arborist work at Arnold Arboretum. It was a very important, significant contract. But so it was through Bartlett's that I got to work at Arnold Arboretum for almost a year doing tree uh, work. And that was kind of my first experience with kind of the institutions around uh, the conservation of nature because Bart, uh, Arnold was, was really a conservation organization even back in the 60s. Uh, so that, that, that year working at that place did have a big impact on me. And in fact, except for a few years working for the state government in New Mexico, the only honest work I've done has been in uh, either tree work, nurseries, I guess what you would call the green industry mm. of landscaping, nurseries, plants. So I've had, a, I've had kind of a very kind of concentrated, narrow career in one sense. I've done a lot of different things in the in the landscape uh, area. Now I have to ask: you can't say something so provocative as the only the only honest uh, you know 
type of job that you've done and, and not uh, expect me to follow up on that. How do you distinguish between, you know, those experiences and, and other ones that you've had in terms of, you know, quote unquote, honesty? Yeah, I, I, I kind of joke about that because I, I did work for the state government in, in New Mexico. And it never felt like particularly honest work. Uh, you know, we weren't doing anything criminal, but I, you know, because of my education, the time I was in university, uh, my kind of loyalties were more with the working class than with the the uh, upper echelons of the professional classes where most of my classmates went to. I have a lot more respect for those those fields and those careers now than I did then. And so when you say honest, you know, by that, do you mean kind of with integrity or authenticity? Yeah, things that, and really what I mean is it, it worked for me. Uh, I just, even though I had this, had had this pretty, pretty good education at Harvard, I, the first jobs I had when I got out of university were all as a landscape laborer, climbing up in trees to, to trim broken branches. Uh, you know, literally a lot of digging and raking. And I loved it, you know. I didn't feel I was wasting my education at all. But I think you make a really good point that, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, as long as we're doing what is right for us, you know, that's that's honesty. Yeah, I think I think that's that's really the case. And calling it honest work and and implying that other kinds of work is dishonest is probably unfair. Uh it was it was honest for me. Right. I would have felt uh, misplaced had I gone, you know, right into business school. Right. Well, I think, you know, the name of the game is is finding out where your place in the world is, both inside and out. Um, now, I want to go on here. You exactly. went to Costa Rica as a volunteer in 1988 and then moved there in 1992 and started a landscaping business. Um, New England and Central America are certainly two very different ecosystems. Could you share a couple of aha moments about horticulture um, that being in that new environment of Costa Rica inspired, um, either about diversity or similarities that existed between Costa Rica and New England? Well, the, the background of my going to Costa Rica as a volunteer had to do with I had a landscaping company in Boston for 17 years. And in about year 15, uh, we got a contract to do a, a zoo project at the Franklin Park Zoo that was going to be creating a big African forest pavilion. I had never really seen a rainforest, so I decided to go down to Costa Rica just to see what they felt like. And on the on that plane trip going down there, I ran into a, a whole group of people from Conservation International who were on their way down there for a board meeting. So by the end of that trip, I had been talked into <laughs> becoming a volunteer. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was a great, great group of people, uh, 
Pete Seligman, Spencer Beebe, uh, and I've remained friends with them over the years. But uh, so, so I was down there for a very short trip, you know, like a week and a half trip. Then almost a year later, went back for a oh, wow. one-year volunteer period, which I spent at a botanical garden in southern Costa Rica called Wilson Botanical Gardens. And uh, well, that was a very important uh, little year for me because uh, – Wilson Botanical Garden was a, a very good botanical garden within a biosphere reserve uh, with a research and education field station as part of it. And what Tofino Botanical Gardens is now is a botanical garden in a biosphere reserve with a field station. So it's, uh, I was very inspired by that year. At Wilson and the people I met there, I think that's really when I first started to appreciate science. I know we're, we'll talk about that later, but that was a kind of one of those eureka years. I don't much believe in eureka moments, but I, I believe in eureka years. <laughs> yes, I know that sensation. I used to so pin my hopes on, you know, just having one big aha moment that was going to like immediately solve all my problems and, um, you know, show me my path. And I too have found that it's a process. Um, but, but so that really was a pivotal year and that, you know, could you, did you have any inkling at that time that you would then go on to, you know, create your own similar uh, nature reserve? No, not not right away. Uh, it's funny. I think I think uh, these ideas they they literally evolve, and you can never really pick the moment when you said, "Ah, that's it." <laughs> I think it it's more that you know six months later you find yourself doing things that then you say. Oh yeah, I'm doing this. Yeah. So it's it's like it's literally like evolution that right? you never recognize the moment when a new species has been emerged has has emerged. Sorry, let me say that again. You never recognize when a new species has emerged. Uh, it's only after it's emerged that you you start to recognize it as a new thing. Yes, that's very true. So before we move on to talk about Dofino Botanical Garden, is there anything else you want to say about your experience in, in Costa Rica? Well, I, I I loved Costa Rica and still still do. I think it's a seeing the, seeing places like that that have such diversity. Uh, will will always. Uh, oh, let me back up for a second here, make well, to edit that out. I think when people visit the tropics, you know, people from the north who visit the tropics, they're often just bowled over 
by the diversity of the world and, and come back with a better sense of how complicated and kind of fragile the world is. So that to me is, is the big uh, takeaway from, from traveling to those places with care. Uh, yeah, that's, that's about okay. it on that subject. Well, I, you know, I think that's pretty, pretty profound. You know, the world at large is complicated and fragile. Um, and, and sometimes we don't recognize that until we're in environments where it's really in our face. Right. Um, okay. Now I want to talk about Tofino Botanical Garden, um, which you, um, began creating in 1997, um, and opened to the public in 1999. So can you just, um, describe, you know, how you got to Tofino and, you know, walk us through the process of um, creating the garden and, you know, describe the garden for us. Yeah. Um, so actually, before we moved up here, I, my family and I, I had purchased this property. It's, it was a 17-acre piece of property. Uh, on the inlet in Tofino. And back in those days, people were not interested in inlet properties. Uh, this this property that I bought had been for sale for about five years with very no local interest. And a few developers from over in Nanaimo had, had uh, been interested a bit, but never made the move. And uh, my ex-wife, Anne, was was up here and we were looking for a small lot because the plan at that time was not to move to Tofino. We are still in Boston or Florida. And uh, so this property, Anne saw this property and it was very affordable for us and uh, we went ahead and bought it. And that kicked in a lot of things. It led me to the decision to sell the business in Boston to eventually move up to Tofino with this little detour to Costa Rica. Uh, but at that point, there was never a plan to establish a garden. So what did you intend to do with the land? Well, build a cabin on it. <laughs> it wasn't like we were just going to kind of build a cabin and then it, the cabin turned into a house and we were living up here. And then it, my you know, spending time walking around the property. So I had sold the business in Boston and I was out of out of landscaping for a while and I was missing it and started started actually thinking about a garden and had lots of uh, lots of ideas of what it could be. I spent a lot of time looking at the best way to, to finance it because it's not a not an inexpensive endeavor to, to get going. Uh, I had actually started a small arboretum down in Costa Rica while we were living there. That was 12 acres. And uh, I, put a, I probably had 50 or 60 different species of trees planted on it. So I had some experience in, in doing a, a garden. I had visited lots of public gardens over, over the years. 
and just kind of kept inching towards it and then a lot a lot of a lot of factors involved in personal family political intellectual spiritual uh, elements came together you know there's a confluence of all of these things and then there was that aha moment but it was an aha six months <laughs> to, uh, I'm, a, I'm slow me too uh, and then I got started on it in 1997 with excavators and uh, the property the, the I'm sure you re- you remember how dense the forest is here, and you, you literally it's very hard to walk through uh, second growth forest up here. Old growth is a little more open down below, but uh, um, it was a challenge to figure out what to do. But I but you know over time I came up with a plan and started. Uh, sort of building trails and boardwalks and little structures. And then I, uh, we built what's now the visitor center uh, cafe. So it was just, it was a, it was two years of, of developing the gardens, spending a lot of money, some of which I borrowed. Now I have to ask um, you, um, I'm really struck by this because, yeah. you know, we hadn't, we haven't previously, you know, gotten into this level of detail about the beginning of the garden and you know at what point did you have to say to yourself um i believe in myself i believe in my vision and i'm going to invest in myself i mean that had to be a part of your process i mean can you talk about that yeah yeah sure uh as i was developing the gardens i you know i worked with a an architect for a while and he did some very nice drawings kind of, but they were sort of prospectus drawings. Uh, so I could give people an idea of what I was talking about. And uh, I remember I organized a little charrette, you know, a little work session down in Portland, Oregon. It was through uh, Spencer Beebe is the founder of EcoTrust. Uh, and so I had a, put together a group of people. There was a sculptor. There were two botanical garden directors. There was a fellow who had been a major fundraiser at Missouri Botanical Garden. So it was a group of professionals in the field, and I wanted to present the idea to them and get their opinions of things. So I, so I did so, and unanimously they said, don't do it. It will ruin you. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Uh, I covered that that opinion up from from my family, and uh, I was already doing it. So I had decided to do it, but uh, thought I would get some confirmation from others. But it wasn't wasn't much confirmation. And, uh, so, but in a way, did that. Did that serve to kind of just uh, point out to you how committed you already were? Yeah, it it did. And, uh, you know, when you really want to do something, you can persuade yourself that it'll work. You know, spreadsheets get people into a lot of trouble because it's so easy to just 
raise the revenues to make it work. Uh, but I, you know, I, I felt that I knew some things about Tofino and the future of, of Tofino that, you know, there was kind of a, an opportunity and I really wanted to do it. So it was like, you know, if, if somebody is a painter, say an, an artist, they're not really that concerned with how much money they're going to make. They're, they want to do the painting and they'll get the canvas. And I guess that's why there are so many starving artists because they're driven by, by this. Uh, it's a compulsion. Now, if you think about the way artists work, it's, there's a lot of uh, OCD involved in it. Uh, yep. and, and do you see yourself as an artist? Well, I do now. Uh, you know, the the more I've learned about garden making and history of garden, I I do feel like that uh, making gardens is an art. Yes, much more than it is a business uh, enterprise. Right. Now, you you just touched on something that I want to um, kind of provide the the backdrop for listeners on. Um, now, this is in the late nineties and, and you referred to kind of having um, a sense of Tofino's potential at that time. And, you know, maybe the, this group of people that you met with didn't quite get that, you know, can you describe what Tofino was like at that time and, and what it's like now? And, you know, um, uh, what your vision was, and if if your vision of Tofino is um, has been manifested, or if it's turned out differently. Yeah. Um, when I moved up here, there were eight hundred people living in town. There were three motels and one resort out on the beach, uh, and it was not a very busy. Place. I mean, that's, I remember the first Sunday I was here, and I I got up and I I drove into town, and I was just like stunned by how empty and quiet <laughs> there's nobody on the streets, uh, and it, it's a small town. You know, it's it's a small town. It's located on the end of a peninsula, so it, it's surrounded by water on three sides and forest on the other side. It's actually, in a sense, it's an island because uh, so Tofino is on the tip of the peninsula, but then it, when you go back, it's National Park. So it is an island, uh, ocean on three sides and National Park on the other. Uh, but when I got here, I was really, well, you'll appreciate this because you're in Massachusetts. I thought that Tofino could go either in the direction of uh, Woods Hole or Provincetown. I'm thinking of the very busy Provincetown where in the summer you park three miles out of town and trudge in with hundreds yeah. of other people, cheap and very busy. Or Woods Hole, which is, you know, this balance of, you know, the Oceanographic Institute. You know, it's not a single... Uh, industry economy. You know, Provincetown has become largely a tourist destination. 
where Woods Hole has, you know, a, a more diverse uh, economy, and I think it's tempered a lot by the uh, Oceanographic Institute and all of the other activities around research and education that happen there. So I thought Tofino could go in either direction, and I wanted it to go in the direction of Woods Hole. Uh, and it's funny that Woods Hole had the first whale watching business in the United huh. States, that of Woods Hole. And uh, whale watching, there was one company in Tofino doing whale watching at the time. Right now, there are probably oh, wow. 10. But so, so yeah. you definitely so, foresaw Tofino becoming a tourist destination. Yes. Yeah. I was not alone in that. Lots of people saw, saw that it was there. Some people were really against it. Some people were for it. it. In those days, there was a lot of controversy about logging. Well, this was actually going to be my next question yeah. because, you know, I know that in the early 90s, there was a real conflict between activists and the logging industry and that there was a real clash of cultures um, and there was a lot at stake. And so I'd love to have you um, share a little bit about that that period and kind of what came out of that. Yeah, so the the uh, the background is is that there had been a very kind of comfortable relationship between government, unions, and logging companies, uh, and it it worked very well for the province. It worked very well for the unions. It worked very well for the logging companies, but they were destroying the forests up here. Uh, faster than anything happening in the Amazon. Remember that—that that was the age of you know the, the Amazon is burning and uh, save save the tropical forests. But at the same time, these forests of our own up here in the north were being destroyed at a faster rate than than the Amazon was. Mm. Uh, so. In fact, Spencer Beebe at Ecotrust is one of the people who really kind of started to draw attention to this. So in Tofino, or in Clackwood Sound, which is the area that, it's kind of the, the large area that Tofino is in, uh, the government plan for the area was to log it in its entirety. Ooh. And even the logging companies recognized that it was about seven years worth of logging and then it would be over. You know, the trees would be gone and they'd have to wait 150 years to come back and log again. But that was the plan and they were starting to go ahead on it. Uh some some a combination of local people in Tofino and some in Euclid, uh First Nations people, uh and some outside activists. Uh, did something that was unheard of in Canada. They threw up a blockade on Mears Island. This was in the mid-'80s. Uh, and they they literally stood in front of where Macmillan Blodell was going to land all of its logging equipment, the excavators and workers and 
buildings that they're going to need to set up a logging camp. So that started, you know, it started a conflict that is still ongoing. Uh, it is not. It's not been resolved, and it, it never will be. You know, forests are never permanently protected because there's always going to be some condition or some company or some government that wants to uh, get the revenue from it. Uh, in 1992, there were some mass protests and mass arrests. The the NDP government of the time. Uh, arrested over 800 people. Oh, my goodness. It was the largest civil disobedience action in wow. Canadian history. So it was it was a very big deal. There were, then there were mass trials that are still, uh, I mean, books have been written about them and the kind of injustice, injustices that happened. But... Uh, while while that was happening and in, in the aftermath, one one thing I had learned is that people forget this stuff very quickly. And I'd say that half the people who live in Tofino right now don't really know much about the arrests. Uh, so one of the reasons, you know, at the very beginning, one of the reasons I wanted to get the garden going was to have it there as a reminder of what had happened and not, not to let people forget the history or uh, diminish the importance of it. So that was uh, mm. very much on my mind. Well, you know, they, as the saying goes, if you forget the past, you're doomed to repeat it. Exactly. And, uh, you know, and another thing about gardens is that uh, a lot of people think think plants as soon as they talk about gardens, but gardens have always been places of education and reflection, uh, and that's that's become very much something I want people to try to do when they when they visit the garden is uh, slow down and try to learn some things. Walk us through an imaginary tour of the garden and what you consider its highlights to be um, and, and what you feel um, the garden tells visitors about the cultural landscape of West Vancouver Island. So you, you come in the, the entrance to the garden and come up to the visitor center. The visitor center is, also has Darwin's Cafe in it. I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But uh, the first thing you see when you walk out into the garden is a, a little, very classic-looking circle with paths going off in four directions. Um, there's a beautiful bronze sculpture by Michael Dennis right right there. And it's, I, I have a photograph of the garden where there's nobody in it. It's early morning. Just a just beautiful, restful place. And then the the next photograph is it's filled with a couple of hundred people at the Food and Wine Festival. Uh, and it's this the contrast is very nice. 
And what I really like is that it works both ways. That, uh, you know, the garden can be a great place to be when it's almost empty. And it's a great place to be when it's very crowded. So I, I've had some good landscape architects me. Our architects tell me that that's uh, a triumph. <laughs> that, uh, you know, it serves, serves you know, a lot of, lot of functions there. So that's something about the garden. And, and also, I think it's important that the first thing that you see when you come into the garden is sculpture, art. And then if you just start turning around and looking around, you see a lot of a lot of art. Uh, we over the past twenty years, we've developed a, a good collection. Uh, we have work by probably four of Canada's best sculptors here in the garden: Mike Mike Dennis, Maury Baden, Daniel Escarin, Greg Snyder, and uh, another local artist, Dan, Dan Law. So. They have a lot to do with the sort of the, the richness that people get uh, when they visit the garden. Yes, I think the sculpture is quite extraordinary. And I mean, can you talk a little bit about how you commission pieces? I mean, you know, or do you commission them or how does that process work? Well, we, we haven't really commissioned individual pieces except. We have two pieces by Michael Dennis that were uh, commissioned. One is called Eve and Adam. And uh, the other one was that he had actually made already, and I saw it and I just loved it and wanted to have it here. Uh, but we haven't commissioned much work uh, that is site-specific. But on the other hand, all of the work we have here really fits into the site well, whether it's uh, made of cedar, made of aluminum, uh, steel, lots of different materials involved. So uh, the people comment a lot that just the, the art seems to fit. <laughs> and it's, it's ironic because it's so many different artists, so many different styles, so many different uh, materials involved. Um, also, another thing that you'll see, you know, coming out of the visitor center are uh, the raised beds uh, going up the hill towards the compost bins. Uh, and the raised beds are, to me, they're they're like one of the oldest elements in gardens anywhere, you know. People have been making raised beds with, with terraces out of stone. But it's just a beautiful, wonderful way of, of dealing with grade changes and creating these horizontal planes that just uh, mm. invite you to get in there and garden. Uh, so so that's that's where the a lot of the cultivation happens. Um we grow a lot of nasturtiums. <laughs> just but nasturtiums grow well here, and they're just the, the color. You, you know that these forests and this uh, 
the landscape out here is very green. Uh, we don't get the kind of fall color that you get back east. It's, it can be kind of relentlessly green. Now, there's a lot of subtle changes going on all the time that you can look for. But uh, introducing color into the garden, even though it's with you know, non-native plants, is really important mm -hmm. and just provides a lot of satisfaction. And are there other a couple of other points in the garden? Um, you know, I know I remember my own experience going out to um, looking out over the mud flats. Right. Down down at the mud flats, it's it's changed from when you were here at time. Make we've oh, we had a couple of big trees blow over down at the waterfront, and we took that disaster as a opportunity to open up a space down there where we can have events, musical events, weddings, meetings, you know, gatherings of different sorts. So it's it's a an area that's roughly 25 feet by 45 feet. Uh, and it's just a one, wonderful to have a space like that down by the mm. water. We built an observation deck that looks out over the uh, water, and it's the shore right there is part of the Tofino Mudflat Wildlife Management Area. Uh, it's a tidal flat, but some of the most important migratory shorebird habitat on the west coast. So that's a that's a place where the garden opens up to all of Clackwood Sand. And I often describe the, the, the garden as a, a, you know, an introduction to the cultural and natural history of Clackwood Sound. And that place kind of epitomizes that, that idea. And do you want to talk for a minute for potential visitors about the history and the, the culture of the sound and provide an overview of that? Well, Clackwood Sound in the, I think the year 2000 was designated as a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve. And uh, a Biosphere Reserve is a, it's not a level of regulation or authority, but it's kind of a recognition that, that an area is very special and worth protecting. Um, so even though the Biosphere Reserve has been very contentious and problematic in its first years, it's now really evolving into a, a very positive institution. Uh, even though it does not have any regulatory authority, it kind of provides a, a moral platform for, for decision-making out here. That's interesting. Now, to back up, why was it contentious and how does it provide kind of a moral platform for people that, that aren't familiar with the area? Can you kind of frame that? Yeah, it was very contentious because even in 2000, the, the war in the woods was still, was still going on. And, uh, There were there are lots of lots of individuals and organizations that did not want it 
to be designated as a biosphere reserve because they felt correctly <laughs> that it would be another level of interference in them being able to do what they wanted to do. That it would be another roadblock uh, to impede logging uh. or mining or uh, fish farming. And in fact, it is. I mean, I, I won't deny it, it gives people kind of a, an anchor in discussing uh, resource extraction out here. So that, that's why it was contentious. Uh, the whole idea of biosphere reserves is to get people talking, bring people in different groups together. Uh, there was an organization up here for, for a while called Ecoquest Canada. And I used to kind of make fun of it because they were always talking about the con conservation economy. And I said, yeah, the, the conversation economy. I, I definitely undervalued the, the uh, impact of good conversations. And I think that's, uh, uh, that's one of the things that the Biosphere Reserve designation does is it, it encourages and creates opportunities for, for you know, in-depth conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's a positive. It is very much a positive. Uh, my my wife now is mayor of oh, Tofino. I know that, George. And so, and she's been mayor for six years, and I think she's been a very successful mayor. She just won re-election with eighty some percent oh. of the vote. So popular, but uh, kind of watching Josie operate has really given me an appreciation for moderation. Yes, and not moderation in results, but moderation in approach. I could talk about moderation a lot, but I won't. <laughs> it's, well, share uh, a few thoughts. Well. Um, You know, the, the, the expression of moderation in all things is, it goes back to Aristotle and probably earlier. But the understanding the difference between, say, courage and recklessness or between prudence and timidity, it's, it's really important. And I think a lot of time people who are able and willing to go to meetings and talk and talk and talk, more important, listen and listen and listen, are, are denigrated. You know, they're not as, as if they're not people of action. You know, we want revolutionaries. But I, I think uh, all of the reading I've done about, you know, about Charles Darwin and evolution has really changed the way I think about all of that. Uh, so having a politician in the family, a good politician, and reading a lot about Darwin will bring you to appreciating moderation right. and gradual well, change. So on that note, that's a perfect segue into um, my next question, which is about uh, Darwin's Cafe, which is the garden's eatery. Um, what is the story behind the name, and, and what is your... Um, you know, your interest in Darwin. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
I would love to. Uh, so we've, we've had a cafe at the garden right from the beginning. But in 2009, we decided to uh, change its name from the Cafe Pamplona to uh, Darwin's Cafe. And eight, uh, 2009 was the bicentennial of Darwin's birth. And worldwide, there were lots of celebrations. And I'd say 50 books were published about Darwin in that that single year. Um, so it just seemed appropriate. I had been, I'd started to read more about Darwin and uh, he's not a person I worship, but I certainly do admire him and I'm a big Darwin fan and geek. Um, some people said, well, you know, some, some people won't come to the cafe that's named Darwin's Cafe and I, but I would take that risk, but I don't think it's had, if it's had an impact on the business, it's, it's been and a positive. One. Why would you say that people wouldn't come? Well, in, in the States as in Canada also, there's, there's a kind of a fundamental religious opposition to Darwin. Darwin is considered the devil incarnate because of his having made clear the, the theory of evolution. Um, so Dar Darwin is, is a very controversial figure. And, and what is it about Darwin in, that, in you, that you find so fascinating? Well, I think Darwin is, uh, his idea about evolution is, has been described as the best idea anybody's ever had and the most dangerous one. And dangerous because it completely changed how we thought about ourselves. Just just like Galileo's uh, you know, theories of, well, the earth is not the center of the universe. Actually, the sun is the center of our solar system. That, that changed a lot. That really had a big impact on how people had to think about the earth and where they were. And Darwin's idea just brought that to the very next step of showing that, you know, humans are, are just another species of living thing on the planet. And he made clear how we evolved and where we came from. And uh, everything changed. Uh, every, you know, and, and nowadays... His ideas are so commonplace that uh, we, we really don't appreciate how much he changed things. And so would you say that, um, you know, his, um, his theory kind of leveled the playing field? Um, in a way, it took us off our kind of elevated position as, you know, made in in God's image and having dominion over the world that kind of let us understand better, you know, where we are now we're, we're a dominant species, but it's, it's not because uh, a, a God made us that way. Uh, it's just the, the way we've evolved. 
Mm-hmm. And um, what else about Darwin is so compelling for you? Well, there's the whole scientific side, but Darwin was a great person. You know, for example, he was a terrific father, and that's something I really admire about him and love to talk about is that he was a Victorian gentleman of, you know, lots of wealth. He never had to worry about money. Um, But he was very, very atypical in that he, he spent a lot of time with his kids. He involved his kids in lots of his experiments. There's this one great story of when Darwin was studying earthworms he set up an experiment with his kids where he had he he cleared a plot of land. It was just a small, like, you know, 30 feet by 30 feet, and wanted to study, wanted to learn whether worms could hear. So he set up one child with a trumpet, one with a drum, one with a violin, and had them playing at different times, and then he would be down on his hands and knees. Uh, while the kids are screeching away in their violin <laughs> and looking at the worms with a microscope. So, and, and here's a man who had written the most important scientific book ever. And, and just him down on his knees and probably one of the kids on his back and, and doing this work. Darwin also was, uh, he, he many times said that, yeah, he did not consider himself a genius. He, he considered himself reasonably intelligent. But if he had a quality that had allowed him to do the work that he did, it was persistence. Ah. That, that's a great thing to hear. Yeah. From, you know, one of the great minds of all time. Persistence. Well, it sounds like humility. Pardon? It sounds like humility. A very humble person. Mm. Um, and a quality I should try to develop in myself. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I think persistence, um, I've been I've been called persistent to the point where I have to ask myself, is it persistence or is it stubbornness? And going back to what you said earlier about moderation, um, I suppose any attribute, uh, you know, you can carry to an extreme. But um, now I'm thinking, um, you know, just of ecosystems. um, And um, I know that uh, Tofino Botanical Garden offers a lot of different activities for the community. Um, So, of course, it's a tourist destination, um, but it's also a community venue um and that some of what you have created includes a story time program concerts writing workshops um and a winter lights festival that looks magical um could you talk about the role of um you know your garden and its local ecosystem or you know what you consider to be the the attributes um of a garden within a larger context? Yeah. Well, I think uh, the Fino Botanical Garden is very much a 
place-based garden. Lots of botanical gardens and, and uh, arboretums. Arnold, for example, their their approach is to bring plants from all over the world and present them to the the local public or the garden visiting public. Um, so you get places like Missouri Botanical Gardens who have these giant uh, domes with uh, controlled environments inside, and they'll have tropical gardens, they'll have Arctic gardens, and uh, they're often very expensive places to, to maintain, very uh, energy-intensive. The Eden Project in, in uh, England is, is another mega-project that... Uh, it's about bringing other ecosystems to a place and letting people right. visit them there. Uh, Tofino Botanical Gardens doesn't do that. We're really about presenting the ecosystem of Clackwood Sound. Uh, we do have one little area where we've planted up some Chilean species, just a little comparative botany convergent evolution area. But but largely it's about the local experience. Uh, people are coming to Tofino to learn about this area. So it would be a little bit silly to, to focus on tropical plants or something like that. But uh, the place is also about you know the, the, lo- the local people, both First Nations and uh, non-First Nations people who live here. Uh, we have the... the writing workshops. We have the artist residencies. Um, But more importantly, we have a little nature school where kids are there five days a week. And it's a little alternative school, uh, but it works in in, uh, conjunction with the public school system. We have... uh, Every Sunday morning, we have a little philosopher's cafe, kind of a social issues uh, cafe. And yesterday, we we spent the morning talking about immigration. You know, of course, the the U.S. comes up and uh, the the impact of immigration on kind of the national scene and as well as the local scene right into Fina. Uh, so, so events like that, uh, in a couple of, well, next weekend, we have uh, a farm and, uh, farm and garden show here where we're having farmers from all over Vancouver Island are coming to both present and sell their, their uh, products, but to meet each other. You know, farmers work in isolation quite a bit. So this is a, this is a socializing event for farmers. And apparently there are going to be over, you know, 150 people here. So, Looking forward to that. So I'm, I'm just, and you know, as you're there. talking, no. I'm just thinking that, you know, in terms of going back to where we started with the idea of cultivation, um, you know, you are um, cultivating community, you're cultivating ideas, you're cultivating discussion of topical events, and, um, you know, would you have said, you know, back in your New England days that that, that is the way that you saw the role of a garden? 
Really good question. No, I, I don't think, I think when I was a lot, a lot younger, I would have really uh, made a strong connection between plants and gardens. And I think I've moved away from that to thinking of gardens as, you know, they're social spaces. They're spaces, they're for people. They're different from a forest, you know, an undeveloped forest, in that they've been cultivated. You know, they've they've been worked on. And, you know, every year for 20 years, we've been going out and planting different, you know, uh, different sets of vegetables. So the garden is starting to take on a kind of a a very stable feeling. And it's all those, those oft-repeated acts of cultivation. And so organizing a, a music event is another way of cultivating the garden. Uh, it takes on a patina. I mean, every time there's an event like that, the garden benefits. And I, I want to make clear that all of these things don't happen because of me. Um, there are lots of different organizations like the Raincoast Education Society, the Surfrider Foundation, uh, and different individuals who've, who've organized things. And sometimes my role is just to get out of the way, <laughs> say, See, yes, and then get out of the way. Uh, we have a lot, a lot of things going on. No one person can right. and, claim credit. You for know, um, as I understand it, um, exploring the relationship between culture and nature is Tofino Botanical Gardens' mission. And I would ask you, you know, do you have a life philosophy um, that developed from that? from your own such exploration. Um, so I don't know if you can share what your philosophy is as it relates to um, kind of the intersection of culture and nature. You know, after 20 years of doing this, I finally have come up with, I think, I can state as, as my philosophy or a statement of what I think gardens are for. And, uh, you know, we've written a lot of mission statements and from the beginning, and they've all been kind of clunky or, or, I don't know, paternalistic or platitudinous, but I think I've come up with something. Tell do, you know, uh, do you know Alain de Botton? Yes. British Rebel. He, he has a book... Uh, how Marcel Proust Can Change Your Life. Mm-hmm. And there's another book called Art as Therapy. And the ideas in those books have really helped me a lot in uh, figuring out what this garden, and really I think all gardens are for. And I'm going to just read off a little list. There Gardens are informative, they're educational, they're inspirational, they house collections of plants, they're a reminder of our connection with nature, they're fun, they can be quiet or they can be social spaces, and they're beautiful. 
And, uh, you know, those are kind of some of the specific takeaways you can get from gardens. But the Boton, he goes a little bit deeper and he talks about uh, art, Marcel Proust, or gardens can help you to, to learn how to love life today, take your time, open your eyes, be a good friend, be happy in love, and to suffer successfully. I mean, those are uh, six just things that I think happen to people when they're in the garden, if they open themselves up to it. But those are all, you know, that's a pretty complicated set of lists. But I, one of my favorite gardens in the world is, is one I've never visited. It's Omarzo in, in Italy. I don't know it, but. Uh, Omarzo is about 70 miles northwest of Rome. Uh, it was the Orsini, one of the Orsini family estates. And in the 16th, middle of the 16th century, Vicino uh, Orsini started building this garden. And it was very different from the other Italian gardens being built at the same time. Uh, it's filled with these very dark, frightening sculptures of monsters and uh, elephants and turtles. And, uh, but there's this little inscription, this little plinth has an inscription on it, and it's as if somebody asked them, you know, why did you do this garden? What's it for? And the inscription says, Sol per sfogare il core, just to set the heart free. And for some reason, that, that little expression has just captured my imagination and so that's the new mission of Tofino Botanical Gardens is just to set it. the heart free. I love it. I, you know, it's funny. I, I'm a gardener, um, totally self-taught, uh, you know, um, and it's probably the only thing I do just because I love it. Uh, yeah. You know, most everything else I do, uh, I have some some other motive. Um, and, you know, I think that's uh, a pretty uh, high ideal. And, uh, and I think you've, uh, at least based on my experience, uh, you have accomplished what you set out to. And, and I was there a while ago. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I've spent so much time saying, oh, come here and you'll learn about the ecosystem or come here and you can learn more about Darwin or you can learn about this or learn about that. And really there's, there's just so much more that you can you know, take away from a garden or just experience yes. while you're in the garden uh, that are not, not particularly scientific there. It's... Uh, so I'm I'm not a profoundly spiritual person, but uh, I just think that that, that idea you know, it sets your heart free, it opens you up. Now, George, let me ask you my last question. 
Um, best cultural destinations tagline is people are culture connecting is the destination. And it seems to me that your work is also about connection. So in closing, could you share a message with listeners about what connection means to you and how you personally have sought to achieve it? Okay. <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> one of my biggest pleasures in having the garden is meeting the visitors. And uh, we, we do get visitors from all over, and they're from you know, amazingly diverse, diverse group. And they've all come here because they're interested in, in the area. They've read about it. They've heard about it. And they're coming for, I think, a lot of different reasons than people go to, say, a, a big mega resort in Puerto Vallarta. You know, right. there's a different, different scale to the place. Um, and I, I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction from helping those people connect to the area. You know, when you, when you visit a new area, you uh, don't know anything about it. You don't know anything about the local culture. Um, and the garden serves as kind of a nice introduction. It helps make that connection. So you're kind of a channel. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and... And any words of wisdom for people on on how to how to be able to connect? Well, come here. <laughs> it's, I, I think it's it really does come down to, you know, the garden is a real physical place, and uh, you can you can learn about it uh, by by you know looking at at. Uh, photographs and films and videos but at at some point you have to make the move and and get there it's not a right. place to get to although it's getting easier with uh, the the new airport conditions um it's worth the trip and come for at least four or five days right i would agree George, thank you so much. This has been a treat, and uh, I've learned a lot, and I've enjoyed it, so I thank you. Well, thank you very much, Meg, and I, I hope to see you here. Yes, I, <laughs> I hope you will, too. Good. Okay. All right. Bye-bye well, for now, George. Take bye -bye. care. Bye.